You're listening to season one of Ding Dong Darkness Time. If this is your first time joining us, we hope you'll check out all the other episodes of this season, each one delving into the dark side of the arts. If you love it, tell the world. In the meantime, let's take a little trip, shall we? Well, hello there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Ding Dong Darkness Time. I am your host, Allison Dixon, and I'm here with my uh, awesome friend. <laughs> I don't know how to talk today. Uh, I'm here with my friend, Chris Armstrong, our recurring co-host. And today we are continuing our exploration of the dark arts in season one. The Dark Arts Without Harry Potter, uh, as we <laughs> sort of coined it. <laughs> exactly. And previous episodes, we covered uh, music. We covered, uh, what else did we cover? Oh, sculpture. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of other art kind of thrown in there, too, when we talked about the Denver airport and all the weirdness. And today, we are covering specifically human built structures because Mm -hmm. not all of them are buildings right you know we're not going straight for like the haunted uh locale and we're not really looking necessarily for the most macabre of the macabre we're so we're not talking about manors on a hill beset by lightning we are not doing that we are not doing the gothic mansion with the well we are doing a gothic mansion we're doing a (sighs) I was going to say, I'm scrapping all my notes here. Let me quickly. (laughs) (laughs) I went a bit too far ahead of myself. We are doing some architecture that fits into that time period, but we're kind of branching out from beyond that a little bit. And also, we uh, have our own personal story that we want to share about a building that Chris Chris and I visited many years ago. Uh, I'm sorry to say it was that many years ago. 2006 was when we went on that little adventure. I'm mathing in my head. Is that 16 years ago? Yeah, that feels about right. (laughs) Oh, yowza. Yeah, so uh, I actually came across this idea... Uh, when I was doing research on something else, actually, that we'll talk about later, discovered the existence of a mansion that is out in San Jose, California, and was the inspiration for Walt Disney's The Haunted Mansion really? attraction at the Disney Parks. I did not know mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Wow. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it reads and feels a lot like something out of Alice in Wonderland or mm. something very surreal and kind of very subtly creepy, although you can't quite put your finger on exactly why. But I think as we delve into this, we'll learn a little bit more. And that is about the Winchester Mystery House, mm. uh, which is the house that was built by the widow of William Winchester, who was one of the founders of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, you know, rifles and and whatnot. And Sarah Lockwood Party, that's her full name, before she became a Winchester. Is that party like P-A-R-T-Y? Oh, <laughs> no, actually, P-A-R-D-E-E. Oh, but okay. I imagine if I had a, a last name that sounded a little bit like party, that yeah. I would make use of that. I'd bust into a room uh, and be like, party time. Yeah, yeah the party is here. The party has everyone rolls their eyes okay you know and given what sarah built here i could see that she might appreciate that she was not a woman of her time 
in a lot of ways that we'll discuss. It feels like it's going to be a recurring theme. People sort of out of time for this episode and the next one we're doing. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't I don't think that you can have memorable, strange art without yourself being a little bit uh, strange yourself. I think there's there's something that sets you apart. So it all, all kind of feeds Beetlejuice with uh, Winona Ryder's character. She's talking about the handbook. Yes. She's like, I myself am too strange and unusual. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, who can't relate to that a little bit? Seriously. So a quick little background on, on this house. When William Winchester, he passed away of tuberculosis, she moved uh, in 1884. She moved out to San Jose, California from New Haven, Connecticut. And she was kind of in deep mourning because, you know, she dearly loved her husband, but they also had an infant daughter that passed away as well. So she, yeah, it was, it was a very sad story, but she inherited this massive fortune. She not only inherited the money that they had, which was $20 million back then, $20 million in 1884 is about oh my God. $500 million in today's money. Uh, wow. In addition to that, she owned 50% of the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. So oh, wow. she had a steady income. They, I think the article that I read estimated that she was making in that day's dollars about $1,000 a day. The arms business, man, it, it definitely pays. Um, so she and she's going to need that fortune for this mystery house that she's going to construct. That's for darn sure. Exactly. So legend has it that she met with a medium uh, after her husband's death, and that person convinced her to seek a new life out west and told her that she needed to build a house that was large enough to contain the spirits of those who were killed by Winchester rifles. A part of me feels like that medium had an agenda of her own. Like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it it kind of feels like this is the lore, right? That she built this house to contain the souls of the victims of her husband's company, right? Right. She's now the 50% shareholder. It just has that feel of like, it's really enticing, but it's too good to be true. Like, I don't know if that's the right word, but like, it it just has that. that It feels like a story. Yeah. The sniff test of folklore. Like, this is what happens when you take the tour, when you go to Mm -hmm. this mystery house and the tour guide says this and it's great storytelling. Is it true? I don't know. Did you find out? Is it kind of up in the air? Oh, oh, yeah. There, there ends up being. I want to say you come away with a definite sense that there was a a bit of lore built around her because of who she was. She was the solitary woman in the 1800s. She died Mm. in 1922. But she lived regardless this life of where women fit into very narrow specific roles. And so she she was painted a certain way that I think befitted that and also just sort of the the appeal uh, in the literary sense of this mad woman uh, living alone in this giant mansion. And so she goes out there and builds this unfinished farmhouse that was sitting on a, on a very large plot of land. And what is true is that she did spend the next 38 years, aka the rest of her life, remodeling this home. Now, one part of folklore states that the construction never stopped, ever. It, it went on, and that was part of the whole confusing the spirits thing. Uh, cause if, Wait, like 38 years of sustained construction, yes, like daily? Yes. Oh, yeah. 
That doesn't sound right. No, uh, according to a biographer, you know, they would take some breaks from the building. I would say that it was probably fairly consistent throughout the year. She would probably always have some form of worker on the property. Sure. uh, Given all the things that she was into and the things that she did with this place. So the house at its peak literally stood seven stories high and it was more tall than it was sprawling. It looked more like a castle Mm -hmm. at one point up until the 1906 earthquake. And it caused a lot of uh, structural damage. And she was worried that it would just come collapsing down. So she had the whole upper stories removed. It's now only three stories high. (laughs) So she had the thing chopped in half horizontally like a cake, like a layer cake. You just cut it off. Wow. Off with its head. Uh, Nice dovetail back to Alice in Wonderland. Uh, She decided then she was going to build out rather than up from that point. And so that's exactly what she did. Also, they estimate, they have to estimate that the house is about 24,000 square feet. There are no blueprints and there are no plans of any kind. And that's because she directed all the construction herself. And it was very haphazard. She would just kind of get this idea in her head and she had the money to hire people to do it. And they just did it because she was the woman with the money. Can you imagine being the contractor on (laughs) this project? We were like, "Uh, okay, now you want... A stairway with seven turns, but it goes up one floor. Sarah, is that what you're telling me today? Yeah. <laughs> okay, you're paying me. Whatever. Like that had to be. That would be. Oh my that would be the best show on HGTV if they could. Do <laughs> 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 Can you imagine like a reality series with a construction company living you with know a Discovery really <laughs> Channel? Oh my god. A&E, one of those with yeah, they totally have that. There has to be some eccentric, crazy. If not billionaire, then very multimillionaire that just wants to keep adding onto the house or doing some project. And it's just a constant thing, right? I think this. Right. Or deconstructing bridges for their super yachts. Oh, you know, just, I mean, you thoughts, know, just ideas. I, I just don't know. For instances. Perhaps. <laughs> um, so 24,000 square feet is the best estimate. And uh, wow. so to put that into perspective, I did I did some maths, very minor, and some breakdowns mm-hmm. and a little bit of Googling to help me out here. So I live in a very moderately sized ranch home. It's 1,700 mm-hmm. square feet. It's, it's not... It's not very big by any means. It's not the tiniest house, but it's definitely not huge. I could put 15 of these into the mystery wow. house. Uh, and I imagine, what Chris, you you owned a home at one point. Do you remember the square footage on it? It was, it was about 16, so just a little bit smaller. Yeah. Any of you out there that are living in modest homes can figure that. But you could fit about three olive gardens in there. Um <laughs> A typical olive garden is about 8,000. Which is an international standard (laughs) of measurement, by the way. How many olive gardens would it take? That's hilarious. Yeah, 8,000 square feet is a typical olive garden. So you could put three of them in there. As Um, it turns out, I worked at an olive garden. So I kind of know what you're talking about. (laughs) That's why I I picked the olive garden. I was originally going to go Cheesecake Factory, but then I was like, ah, not everybody's been to a Cheesecake Factory still. And so then I thought, hey, uh, Trader Joe's, you could fit two Trader Joe's into 
this house. And that's easy for me. I work I work at Trader Joe's uh, as of this recording. I, I will say they're not all built the same. I have a they're little not. baby Trader Joe, so mine's probably smaller than yours. But yeah, they I think said there was a like a range. Yeah. So then uh, and then just to really go like, okay, this is a big house, but it isn't the biggest thing ever. It's only about one eighth the square footage of a Walmart super center. Okay. Uh, a Wal- yeah, Walmart super center is about eight hundred and eighty thousand square feet. So you could really put that into perspective, like the sizes of the structures that we're dealing with. I thought that was just fun to try to imagine it because when you look at this house online and they do these drone flyovers, it mm-hmm. just looks like this never ending complex of buildings buildings that are all connected and it, it is just overwhelming there's all these roof peaks and well that's the thing though like you think about a walmart it's just one big room right it's a big box this right. house from what i understand and you're gonna tell us yeah but my recollection is well you said three floors and also just a mishmash like you said sarah's like okay today we're gonna do this okay this year we're gonna do that this decade we're gonna it's just a hodgepodge so it's like it's not as simple as walking from one end of a building no, to another. No, it's like a, it's like your own labyrinth, basically. It would be impossible. I try to imagine, and and this is now on my bucket list. I need to get to this house very badly because mm-hmm. uh, I need to be inside it. It is, uh, it is, is something MC else. Is Escher a good way to put it? But because aren't there like stairways to nowhere? Or like doors in a way. But also, oh, you know what? We're going to take it back to Harry Potter. You said not Harry Potter, but that's what Hogwarts is, right? Isn't it like a bunch of like crazy, goofy construction? All it needs are talking portraits on the walls to really complete the picture. And like stairs you can sink into and not be able to get out of. Yeah, yeah. It's all terrifying. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I just thought it was fascinating to think about. But to me... Thinking of it on a smaller scale just that feels so enormous. Absolutely. For a home? Yeah. And I'm hope I'm hoping some of you were Googling this already if you're not in a car or whatever, or you've already seen it, or you're gonna Google it, because it there's some great fly-throughs and flyovers on YouTube. Mm. Um, and you can also, of course, there's a ton of pictures on on the Googs. And so when you look at it, you'll be able to see that uh the exteriors, like that pure Queen Anne style. Victorian or, or not Victorian Queen Anne which is post-Victoria style of architecture where you have these turrets and finials and columns and there's you know it's very grand and it, it looks like a storybook princess house yeah like the bright yellows and the reds yeah yeah and like the turrets you know it's funny I live in Queen Anne that's the name of the neighborhood I live in nice about that? very good I don't see any houses like this nor no. that size I don't think that's sustainable in Seattle but <laughs> I don't think Seattle could support uh another massive mansion um <laughs> mm. Mm. uh and so you, you look at that and then and then the inside I I thought this part was interesting um so there's this whole thing called the aesthetic movement uh and this was very popular in the 19th century, especially where every object in the place from the doorknobs to the oven doors to the edge of the tables and all that it was all decorated in some way. It was thought to uphold your moral, you know, strength or whatever and to feel good about your life if you lived in beautiful surroundings. It was an uplifting thing. And this trend obviously continued. Any of us who have grandparents that were born in the early part of the 20th century 
I'm thinking of my mom's mom uh, going to her mm-hmm. house and how there wasn't like a single surface in the place that wasn't covered with a doily or an embroidery of some kind. And, right, you know, the curtains right. were just perfectly pleated. And there was always these in the houses, you know, from I would say the 50s and, and earlier, they all have some sort of like unique detailing and craftsmanship to them. It was like they surrounded themselves for with art for the sake of art. You don't see that much these days. Things are a lot more austere, I would say. We can live in mm-hmm. we we go for the more minimalist look. And when you buy a house, it's all very modern, it's all very clean lines. I pretty I would say that probably set in really hardcore in you know in the 60s and it just kind of and nowadays it even that feels uh more artistically expressive than some of these very generic boxes that we're moving into. I mean, yeah, it's very cheap, it's very cookie cutter, right? Like a lot of suburban neighborhoods especially, it's just the developer for that neighborhood had five or six models you chose from the model and you maybe picked a color and that's what you get. So Yeah, oh and and remembering like the wallpapers and the textures on ceilings and uh you know Growing up out here in the Midwest, we we see a lot a lot of houses like from this time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, just you know, oh, there was a lot more people settling out here around you know the this time, and in the town that we graduated high school was established in what the late or it was like late seventeen hundreds. It, it has a long history. How is it that early? My goodness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so if you travel in the downtown village area, you have these all these houses built in the 1800s, and they are all kind of like that if you go inside them. It feels very artistic, these houses. So I thought that was really interesting, and it really fed into the way that this place is decorated, because it's like that. Uh, Sarah was a massive collector of artifacts and loved all different types of decorating styles from all over the world. She, and she put them all in the house. So you see these architectural elements from like Egypt, Persia, Greece, and Japan was a big one. She loved uh, Japanese uh, design. So you'll find these beautiful wooden parquet floors with like a fireplace that had uh, lotus flowers and the tile work that were like embedded into, you know, stuff like that, where it had a, a more Asian aesthetic, but it was in a very classical looking American uh, or European um, setup. So to look at this house, you see so there's so much going on with the decoration. And she was really into motifs of uh, where she had uh, stained glass, wood carvings and tiles, all with like birds, flowers and spider webs. She loved nature. Hmm. Uh, The spider webs were very recurrent, which gave it, again, that sort of like, I think that adds to the lore of the house. Like, she was also really into the number 13. Oh, yeah. Um, It was a a fixation (laughs) for her. Interesting. Uh, Because of the status of the number as being kind of a cursed number or That's a good question. I, you know, they, nothing that I researched explained that part of it. And that's what I think makes it easy for people to insert that into the the explanations so she already was a spiritualist she already had spoken to a medium i mean that's that's not debated and i'll get into that in a a minute but well um, quick quick question isn't 13 a baker's dozen it is yeah maybe she had a crush on a baker we don't know Mm -hmm. who's to say there we go. There it there is. There we go. Or, or yeah, I, I, I we like, think it's a cult yeah. and dark and scary. And really, she's just like, <laughs> no, my husband passed away, and you know, I had this obsession, yeah. but you know, got a crush too. Yeah, exactly. And he bakes me thirteen buttery hot buns. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but Whatever. I have buns, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't. That's an odd number, but we'll we'll live with it. Uh, don't ask questions. So, so she, <laughs> but she would have like thirteen crystals put into a stained glass window that she commissioned mm. uh and by the way hundreds or thou- hundreds of these windows she had commissioned and a lot of them she never displayed she just collected them a lot of them are never were used mm. um it just shows how much money she had i mean this making stained glass especially back then oh my god uh extremely expensive yeah um and so the webs in the number 13 appear in many forms throughout the home so it definitely shaped the perception of the house where this frightened crazy woman lived a place where she's trying to contain ghosts in this never-ending structure of spirits that are not at peace because they were killed by a winchester rifle yeah yeah. um we don't know if remington had anything to say about this or some of the other uh or colt or whatever other manufacturers were operating at the time but uh those spirits of course are have nowhere to go. <laughs> so, um, so basically, as we said already, there's a story that we're given, and then there's a real story. And it's not that the one we're telling you is less interesting. I just find that the ones, the untold story often tends to encompass a lot more interest because I don't know. I think, I, I think maybe once we dig in and try to understand it, it's, it's like, I don't know. We, we always wonder like why, that story wasn't enough. Why did it have to get spiced up? Because this story is interesting all its own. It encompasses both the aspects of the bizarre and the creepy aspects of this house, but we can also appreciate her actual story. Mm-hmm. She spent most of her life alone in this house. I mean, she's this grieving woman that has been through a lot. And she, I mean, really is a woman in a man's world in a very big way back then. And I don't imagine it was an easy life in a lot of ways, despite her having all the money in the world and all that. I think it's interesting that she made this her project, that this was her way of feeling fulfilled. Her house was like her testing ground. It was her laboratory. It was her canvas. Uh, And it's kind of fascinating to think that you could wake up one morning and just go, huh, or what if we did this whole big thing to the house? Nobody gets to do that. I mean, none of us, you know, the normal folk out here. It's like, I have projects I need doing that needed doing years ago. And I'm just like, oh, that seems like an old timey pursuit. Like people, uh, granted, she had ridiculous money. So that's a different story. But it feels like an old timey pursuit that I don't know, maybe more people were able to do that. Maybe it's wrong. I don't know. I just feel like now you want to have someone come out and do a basic thing. It's like half a thousand dollars. It's 500 bucks, right? You know, it's just, it just seems crazy. Yeah. And so um, I, I'm i curious. And if you're building to this, we can table it for later. Um, do we know what her motivation was? Was it really containing these ghosts of people who died the death? Did she truly believe that? Or was it something else? I, I don't you know, know. So I'm curious. No, I mean, that is is definitely something I'm looking forward to answering. Uh, because a lot of the stuff that she was into feeds that prevailing notion of that motivation. Okay. Okay. So for instance, the house has a seance room, mm-hmm. which lends some credence to the folklore. But one thing people don't often consider is how common spiritualism was back in these days. And it was largely because of the Civil War. Mm. Um, we lost 
million, you know, I don't, I can't remember the exact death count of the Civil War. I think it was like uh, three quarters of a million or maybe a little less than that. I can't remember. Mm. It was a lot of people dying. And there were a lot of grieving widows and grieving mothers losing sons and, you know, the widows losing their husbands. And so it made the whole seance thing more commonplace. So this isn't necessarily something that means like, oh, she was a witch or she was like meeting with the devils or whatever, you know, like all these things people want to feed into everything that she was doing in this house. No, it wasn't unusual during this time. So the, but the interesting thing about the seance room, it's actually creepy in its own way. And so there's a door that goes to exit the, the seance room. And when you open it, you about five feet ahead is another door. Okay. And then you step into something that almost looks like a closet, open another door. And what that is, is a door that's in a closet of another bedroom. <laughs> oh, wow. Like there is stuff like that. Or there's walls in the hallways and they just have windows cut into them for no pair. There's so many interior windows in this house hmm. and exterior, of course. And that's just one of many things. There are 2000 doors in this house. 10,000 windows, 47 fireplaces, 40 staircases, 40 staircases. <laughs> this is not a visual medium. My mouth is just hanging open right now. That's yeah. Wow. 2,000 doors. Right. And so many of them do oh. not lead to anything. There was one door you, and this was an interesting find is you open it and behind it is a metal door. You open the metal door and it's the door to a safe you get the safe open, there's another door inside of that that you then open and then there's the contents. And the only thing she ever kept in there apparently was her husband's obituary and a lock of their baby girl's hair. It's all she kept in that safe and that massive thing. I mean, that's actually a true thing. And that to me speaks to exactly what her motivation was. I don't think it was motivated by the fear of spirits. I honestly think this was what she poured herself into when she was widowed. Is this like her processing the profound loss? Like, was this her way of dealing with this awful loss of your your husband, your child? Like that's... Because at that time, it's interesting that she never remarried. I I feel like she felt like that was it for her. Like he was it for her. And when Mm. she, you know, a little bit like Betty White, and her husband, I mean, she never, her husband died in, in I think, the 80s, I think it was, but she never wanted to remarry. She never even considered it. She, in, in her heart, that was still her husband and right. she didn't want to. And some people do. And that's perfectly fine if you move on. I mean, absolutely no judgment there. I wouldn't be alive myself if my mom hadn't moved on from her grief from losing her first husband. And so... That is uh, something I'm not looking down on, but I definitely do feel like she lost her husband. She lost her baby. This is now her life. And the interesting thing, too, is how innovative the designs were. So most of the staircases were really shallow. They call them easy risers because they're very like shallow. You can go up a lot of stairs and it's almost like a ramp that just has little notches cut in it. So like short steps. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah, Okay. 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 And so there were a lot of these kind of staircases throughout the house. And it's because she was only four foot 10 
Wow. She was a very small woman Damn. and she ended up having very bad arthritis as she got older. And so she couldn't really lift her legs very easily. Yeah. So she had the house just filled with these easy risers and she had like a special shower built for herself. Showers were unheard of at this time, especially for women. Uh, women were discouraged from using showers. Mm. Uh, we had to get in the bath uh, and cover ourselves up with dirty water. <laughs> like, <laughs> Sit in a pool of your own filth. Exactly. She couldn't get into a bathtub, so she just used her resources to have a shower stall built for herself with it's almost like an an early version of, you know, those shower jets that come out like from the shower walls in addition to the big shower head that rains down the water. There's always like she was a pioneer, man. Oh, my gosh. Uh, That's the exact word you use the exact word that I use. That's exactly what she was. And just not conventional, like. You could go into that building and if you don't know the history, like, why are these stairs so small? And your brain can kind of turn and start to concoct this story. She had trouble lifting her legs. So she needed some way to get through this massive house to do that. And it's like, it's just the dumb stuff of like, women can't shower. What are you talking about? Like, this is, it's so goofy. Also, if she has severe arthritis, she can't get down into a tub and then pull herself right. out. Like, God, it, even oh, I man. can barely do that. I'm, I'm 40 <laughs> damn years old. And I'm like, oh, God, getting down on the floor. Oh, forget about it. Yeah, but she's like, I'm going to have like pulsing jets and I'm going to have a... Did she invent the rain... Uh, shower head, the rainfall shower head. Did she invent that? Yeah, too? <laughs> I mean, honestly, this is one of those like she should be getting more credit than she yeah. ever got. She also did something very cool. She had a plumbing, like, it was so unusual to have plumbing in a house during this time, sure. you know, period, you know. So, of course, she has it, but uh, she would have a faucet in every room that she could have a faucet because hmm. she liked to have plants everywhere. Oh. I think she was just loved the idea of being able to have a faucet wherever you need one. Sure. Right. You have so many damn rooms in this house, too. So it kind of reminds me like when I was driving through Montana and I felt like it was never going to end. And I was also worried that one take of gas wouldn't be enough to get to the next gas station. So it's like that, but you're walking across a house that is the equivalent of Montana. It's this never ending sprawl of house. And then what if you get too far from a tap, you know, and you get thirsty, what if you freaking die of dehydration (laughs) getting from one end of the house to the other? Uh, So yeah, a, a tap in every room, damn it. Yeah. But, uh, She did all of these things, though, really just because she was like trying to make her own life more accessible and and more easy to live. I mean, all of these things that are in here, a lot of them had purpose in her mind. And some of it was also really nice. This shows her character as well. So she considered her servants needs as well. And so she put these little like inserts in the corners of the stairs to keep the dust from gathering Hmm. in the corners of the stairs so that they'd be easier to sweep. She had hot and cold water taps for every sink and built-in washboards and built-in soap holders. She had this really great intercom system that she came up with, like where you could run tubes to the different rooms and speak into the hole in the wall and did you ever see the what is it not Bly Manor what's the other one Hounding of Hill House yeah Hill House yeah duh yeah they have something like that like the tubes Mm -hmm. where they could talk between the rooms is it like that yeah yes it's exactly like that it's exactly like that so and she came up with this neat little push buttons in every room too uh, so that if she was somewhere in the house and she needed one of her servants she would push a button and it would light on a board 
in the kitchen wow. where that would at least tell you what floor or area of the house that she's in. Like this is the stuff. She basically made the the button that you hit when you want the flight attendant to come assist you. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So this is great. I love all this. Yeah. So it ended up being that the house is just this testing ground. She was someone who was constantly thinking and trying to improve things. And she loved the act of testing things to see if they would work and then scrapping them if they didn't work. She was kind of a researcher, kind of a scientific mind. The sad thing is that she never patented any of her designs. Uh, So here is this woman who probably could have built an empire of products and innovations and and things which just didn't occur to her it wasn't part of her mindset she already owned half of a company why would she want you know maybe that empire was enough and so these things that are in this house that are so unusual or that look like precursors or things that we're seeing now this is what she did yeah it feels like the motivation wasn't profit of course it was comfort yeah and i yeah. and i just have to wonder if it's not like people who stay busy to in some ways avoid your grief, right? If I stay busy, if I have this errand that's consuming, then I don't have to think about this awful thing in my life. It gives me a purpose. It gives me a focus. And I just have to wonder if that's not part of it as well. Absolutely. I feel that that is a huge part of it. And so then if the people that are making the histories of this are the ones that think that this is weird or eccentric or inappropriate because this is a woman. Right. Um, they're the ones that are building the perception that we have. I mean, yes, you do take this very eccentric home that honestly isn't, well, it's worth more now, but it, it was worth nothing. After she died, she didn't bequeath the home to anybody. Okay. She just gave the possessions in the house to a niece, but said nothing of the house itself. And so appraisers at the time were like, this house isn't worth anything. It's kind of useless and, and with all this stuff. And it had damage from the earthquake. And so it was sold at a very low, wow, crazy low number back in the, uh, the 20s after she died. And so then it just kind of like was leased out over and over again. It fell into disrepair. Nobody really took much care of it. And then eventually they started to revitalize it and bring it back and and uh, they added some new possessions that they had found of hers and eventually turned it into kind of a more of like a museum. So you can go in and do tours and everything. There have been the occasional like paranormal show. There's always one of those. But for the most part, it's really can be seen as like this beautiful art piece uh, made by an eccentric woman. I don't think she was you know ridden with guilt she was just living her damn life, <laughs> living her best life right? as a woman of that time can. Right. You know, I, I'm glad to hear, obviously, that that's a lot of grief there. My worry is that it was a, a mental illness or yeah. something that um, was just an obsession that consumed her. And it doesn't sound like that's the case, which I'm very happy to hear because what she went through is enough. <laughs> you don't you don't need more hardship than that. So yeah, I mean, I think that she did something in a lot of ways kind of enviable if we really think about it. So yeah, go to go visit Sarah Winchester's house. A lot of people that maintain it, I think they have a very deep love for it. And it shows. Allison, we're all waiting for the real truth here, which is you're going to drop the bombshell that there's a door that goes down to the demon worshiping murder basement. Uh, you've, led no, people, no, no. you've led people along 
far it's enough. It's funny that you mentioned that. The next building we'll talk about here in a little while after we talk about Ooh. the one you have uh, might have one of those. A murder basement. Oh, my God. A, de- a demon dungeon. A demon yeah. dungeon. I mean, that's really a selling selling point. You want an open floor plan. You want stainless steel appliances and a demon dungeon. Yes. Like, that's <laughs> every person on HGTV. That's their it's wish like, list. I eat crayons for a living and <laughs> uh, have a budget of $8 billion. Right. <laughs> All I, I really want is a demon for South by Southwest. <laughs> and we own a sneakertorium. And you're like, oh, what, what are these words? I repair old penny farthing bicycles. You're just like, oh my God, what is going on right now? All right. Well, that's enough of me. Now, how about you, boo? We're getting back to the darkness. Back to a structure that has haunted me since I first laid eyes on it. Back in about 2005 or six. And this, we're going to go across the Pacific Ocean. We're leaving California we're soaring across the ocean. We're going to land in a little place called North Korea. Ah, yes. Um, which already, North Korea is just such a place of lore and stories and suffering and just... Mystery. Yes, exactly. It's just, it, it's steeped with all this just really dark and twisty and, and sad and just fascinating storytelling we could do a whole season of this show on north korea to be honest you do a whole podcast be... probably right uh, right right absolutely uh it, it's so fascinating and the structure i'm talking about is the ryongyong hotel and if you don't know what this is do yourself a favor and stop right now and look it up ryongyong hotel you may not spell it correctly you're gonna you're gonna find it it's gonna be super easy allison how, how would you describe this structure this hotel this building it looks like either uh, a mountainy thing or mm. rocket ship mm-hmm. or it looks like alien spacecraft that just landed oh it's terrifying uh in its shape it's kind of nightmarish to look at absolutely and it towers over the rest of the capital pyongyang this thing is over a thousand feet tall uh that's about oh, 330 boy. meters for people I guess pretty much outside the U.S. Does everyone use meters but us now? Uh, Are we the last holdout-ish? Okay. Here and there, the com- the British Commonwealth is kind of a weird mixed bag, too. So Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that should cover all of us. If you're measuring things in something else, I apologize. You're not going to get a you're not going to get a unit of measure out of this. How many uh, Olive Gardens is this? That's the real question. So how, how many Olive Gardens tall? That's our um, new measure. I need square footage. Uh <laughs> Is this and like, then I can absolutely tell you. We have like Fahrenheit and we have Celsius for temperature, but Kelvins, you know, so this is like Olive Gardens are like the Kelvins of distance. Exactly. It would just know one Olive Garden equals 8,000 square feet and you could pretty much <laughs> just find out how many Olive Gardens everything uh, is. Yeah. Y'all, y'all do the math. We're not a math cast here. Sorry. Yeah. Not a math cast. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can absolutely see why this haunted your brain uh, when you saw it because uh, it is it is not even natural looking in a traditional architecture sense. It doesn't, you'll see there's nothing like this yeah. out there. Do yourself a favor, look it up. I, I will say this much. It looks different now than it did for many, many years, for decades, as a matter of fact. Yeah. So you might see something you're like, well, it looks kind of cool and interesting. It looks very sleek. Well, that's not how it started off. So let's dig in a little bit. So 
the Ryunyong Hotel, it's 105 stories. And as mentioned, it's in the capital of North Korea, Pyongyang. And it's this unmissable feature in the skyline. It really, because it's so angular and sharp, it does kind of cut across the skyline of the city. Nothing else is even remotely as tall as this thing. Right. It's the tallest building in the entirety of the... Democratic People's Republic of Korea. I'm just going to call it North Korea. That's a mouthful. Yep, yep, that works. (laughs) Uh, And it's slightly taller than the Eiffel Tower. So if you've seen the Eiffel Tower, you're at least familiar and have a sense, it's just a little bit taller. Yeah, Uh, wow. And it's unique, very one of a kind, almost a sinister shape, as you said. It's been called everything from a pyramid to a bat to a spaceship, uh, a missile launch pad. And the name, Ryongyong, actually is, it translates basically into capital of willows, uh, which I guess is one of the historic names for Pyongyang. I see. And that's that's what it's supposed to look like a willow tree, I guess. I don't see it. I don't see it. No. (laughs) <laughs> There's a little bit of what I'm going to call retconning from Kim Jong-un, I believe, who is right. the current leader. I think yeah. he's the one who retconned it a little bit. We'll get to that. So anyway, it's also been called the Yukyung Hotel, the 105 building, officially, but it's also earned a lot of unflattering nicknames. The Hotel of Doom, Phantom Hotel, and it's been called the worst building in the history of mankind. <laughs> wow. Wow. I... Hmm. You know, hyperbole is a thing. Hyperbole is a thing. um, (laughs) But all of this bad press actually led to the government to deny its existence, scrub it from official photos, and remove it from maps. Oh, my God. Yes. But they didn't want to tear it down. It was almost like they... Just, it's a propaganda move. Well, that's a great point. So why do all that? Why go through all of this pretending... The 105-story elephant in the room is not there because this building has never been occupied or used for its original purpose. It remains empty to this day, 34 years since construction began. How long did you say Sarah worked on the Winchester House? 38 years? Yes, 38. So almost the same amount of time they've been working on this thing on and off and completely (laughs) empty. Is it owned by a grieving widow (laughs) by any chance? (laughs) Well, it's definitely owned by grieving ancestors uh, or descendants from the first supreme leader of North Korea, which we're going to get to. Oh, yeah. Going to get to. Oh, boy. Oh, awesome. So um, what's also crazy, some have questioned whether it's even safe to occupy because it's basically set for decades, exposed to the elements, and built with inferior and unsafe materials so it's a wilting it's a wilting struck sculpture of you know that was just it's that's just been sitting there it's a weeping willow that's Um, for sure this thing (laughs) is yeah it's well okay so that's the overview we're gonna we're gonna jump into this a little bit we're gonna see where this thing has come because when i first um was introduced to it again around 2006 or so is in a profound period of dormancy basically 16 years this thing sat untouched. Wow. And that's when I first learned about it. But if you go look it up now, you're going to see something that looks a little bit different. But just remind yourself, it's going to look sleek. It's going to look cool. It is empty inside. It's a it's a DeLorean. It's- okay. <laughs> well, well, I might do an episode on the DeLorean. Let's just say it looks cool. 
Uh-huh. Not very cool on the inside. <laughs> but at least there was something. Yeah. I feel like if you open the DeLorean and it's completely empty inside. There's no steering wheel. Oh. There's no upholstery. There's clearly no flux capacitor. But, you know, it's like, there's oh, nothing sad. inside. You're like, what a cool car. And you open it up and it's a cardboard box. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of a little bit about what it is. Well, why is it? So as I mentioned, the hotel's unique design was intended to match the shape of a willow tree uh, or a mountain. I like that. And actually, this may be the first time you've ever heard this. You and Kim Jong-un are, are thinking a little bit in the same way. How about that? Uh, I know that's not the first time you've thought this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it's got this like retro Soviet design, this neo-futurism yes. that makes it look more like a missile of imposing drab concrete is really what this thing is made of yeah yeah the concrete part the first word that came to my mind before i thought of anything else was actually soviet oh 100 uh, it looks so much like something you would imagine and some futuristic soviet i will call it utopia for them mm-hmm. uh and mm-hmm. that's they would this would be the towering missile that they use to aim nukes at at america uh 200 <laughs> you are so right i am going to refer to this as the spite hotel no one else has <laughs> wow. called it that if you look it We've up we've marked it like, here guys <laughs> episode three of Ding it's Dong not so Darkness much I mean, it's not so much i'm claiming ownership but more like if someone looks it up and like what is this dingbat talking about that's not that's not a thing other than in my mind. So let's go back to the 1980s. North Korea is in bed with the USSR and its economy is stalling. Growth is slowing. The national debt is climbing. Juxtapose that with South Korea, which had transformed into one of the world's most successful economies. Seoul was going to be hosting the 1988 Summer Olympics. It was transitioning to a capitalist democracy Guess who was not super fan of that transition of South Korea? (laughs) Yeah. Kim Il-sung, the then supreme leader of North Korea. And little did they know, the Cold War was in its waning days. And both North and South Korea were still kind of actively competing for global prestige and legitimacy. North Korea needed to outdo South Korea. They needed to prove themselves better. This is one upsmanship in the most blatant way possible. And what happens is that Seoul is participating in the construction of a mega hotel in Singapore. So it's not even in South Korea, but they're the ones who are kind of constructing it. Um, And Kim Il-sung says, we're going to make a hotel that is going to surpass this and give North Korea a bustling tourist economy in the process. It's kind of sad. Uh, This is like a sad sibling story, like the ugly sister (laughs) and the hot sister. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm gonna get a boyfriend hotter than your boyfriend. Just you watch. Uh, no, I mean it, the dynamic here is absolutely fascinating. Trying to imagine Korea, North Korea, rather to have the aspiration to be this world hub, this this f- cosmopolitan place is such a contrast to really what we see now. Is like where they're just completely cloistered away from the world and. Nobody gets in. Yeah, it's fascinating also because if you think about it, this is the same time that the U.S. and USSR are kind of one-upping each other. The space race, right? That's a big deal. There's all this kind of back and forth, the nuclear arms race. And this same kind of competition, different, but still playing out in the Korean Peninsula between these two countries trying to outmatch each other. And what's interesting too is, so like I said, South Korea is going to be hosting the 
1988 Summer Olympics. So North Korea organizes the 1989 World Festival of Youth and Students. Oh, interesting. A socialist version of the Olympics. And in planning this, they are going to build a massive hotel just in time for the event, which will steal the world record away from the South. Because basically, they're going to build one that's taller than the South Korean hotel. And it's going to be the tallest hotel, I believe, in all of Asia, if I remember correctly. It wasn't just in Korea, but all of Asia. Right. I'm starting to feel a little... little, uh, sad like sorry for north korea that this is their it's pathetic kind of it's gonna um, get worse it's gonna get oh worse God. because uh again the ryongyong hotel was ambitious uh it was going to be the world's largest hotel and as it stands right now its height was not surpassed until 2005 the rose tower in dubai wow so if that would have happened this would have been decades and decades of this being the largest hotel in the world and that is a massive uh, draw, I think, for the for that industry Absolutely. to be able to make that claim. I mean, that is a, a like your Michelin star. <laughs> yeah, it's really meant to like bring in foreign nationals and bring in tourists and, and business people, and it's really meant to not only spur the economy but be kind of a destination, is how they're seeing it. Uh, and it was planned to be mixed use, right? They're going to have a hotel. They're going to have. 3,000 hotel rooms. That was, that's the common number. I've seen some sources say 7,665 rooms. I don't know how that's possible. Depends on, I guess they would be tiny little coffin rooms. I (laughs) I mean, they'd have to be. That sounds nuts. But 3,000, my goodness. Five revolving restaurants, observation decks, casinos, nightclubs, lounges. It's not enough to have them just stationary restaurants no they gotta spin and not Sorry. just one but five five rotating restaurants like olive gardens <laughs> five rotating olive gardens everybody i mean imagine, imagine? I'm just you know for scale i mean that sounds like possibly they might be that big or bigger um, well and if you look at the building the little cone at the top that's where you'll see these little bands and that's where those revolving restaurants were going to be and i think above oh. it was the observation deck so i mean you're looking over the entirety of pyongyang at that point you can see everywhere and it's 360 views it's got to be amazing um yeah but engineering problems it wasn't ready in time spoilers for the festival it did not come together for 1989. Well, I wonder why. Because the government already poured billions of dollars into the event. They built a new stadium. They expanded Pyongyang's airport, (laughs) paving roads. And this is not a rich country. So they've already strained what was at this point a frail, just withering economy. And then what are we going to add on top of that? The Soviet Union collapses just a few years later. The perfect storm. Absolutely. So this is what I saw in the official biography of Kim Jong-il. So just if you're confused. Okay, so the first ruler of North Korea, the supreme leader, is Kim Il-sung. He's preceded by Kim Jong-il, who is then preceded by Kim Jong-un, who is the current leader. Okay. okay. So just so everyone's clear. So the official biography of Kim Jong-il, the middle of the three, is that... He was born in a secret military camp on Mount Peik 2, the tallest mountain in the Korean Peninsula, uh, which is depicted in the national emblem of North Korea. And that is what the building is meant to symbolize. Ah, interesting. Which doesn't make sense because he died after he was, you know, let's just not. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> that's a bad retcon. retcon, retcon bad retcon. one. 
I mean, in the history of North Korean retcons, it's probably not even top of the list, top 10. <laughs> right. Oh, they retcon everything. My God. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, so let's get a little bit into the construction. 1987, it commences. But as I said, a few years later, the Cold War ends. Soviet bloc collapses. Pyongyang is now deprived of its trading partners and resources to build this building. They don't have advanced materials that they need. This thing is made of reinforced concrete. My God. So part of the reason the structure looks like it uh, does is because that building as reinforced concrete as like a cylinder would not be structurally able to stand up. So the design is in part because of the materials used. It's not made of steel and it can't support its own weight. So that's why it has that pyramid type shape. It gets smaller at the top for structural reasons. Um, So that's a huge thing. By all accounts, they deprived 2% of their GDP to build this what? thing. Wow. Can you imagine 2% of your gross domestic product going to one building? Uh, uh, there's a lot a lot to unpack about that. Um, given that, oh my God, I bet it was already not great to start with. Right. Uh, and then to dump it all into one thing when you have people... Starving. They're going to starve. Yeah. yeah. Famine. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Let's, let's just, you know, make this giant dick extender because that's pretty much what it is. Uh, absolute fail. So then they're going to open it in 1992, which is the 80th birthday of President Kim Il-sung. Uh, but by 1992, basically what you get is the outer skeleton. You get the, the framework. But once again, economic turmoil hits or continues to hit and... Their limited resources have to go elsewhere. They kind of let it be. And there's also issues at this time about the building methods and materials. Electricity in the country becomes scarce. Famine is widespread. This is a super low point. This is one year after the Berlin Wall comes down and the Soviet bloc starts to crumble. Yikes. So what do you have? You have an incomplete, unappealing hotel. Again, this cutting across the skyline. Can't avoid it. This is when they start, okay, well, we're going to take it out of photos. We're going to take it off of maps. We're going to pretend it doesn't even exist. Yeah. And then local, like local guides, tour guides would just not acknowledge that it exists. That's just. Oh, that's just so weird. Like, it doesn't look like much to me. That's like a line from Westworld where. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like you're just standing there looking at it. And I guess if you're just a person living there, you know, the, the game. So you're yeah. like, oh, okay, I guess there's nothing there. Absolutely. <laughs> well, right. So it sits yikes. vacant. It has no windows, no fixtures, no fittings. It is a concrete shell. There's a rusting crane on top of this building, which the BBC called a reminder of the totalitarian state's thwarted ambition. Oh my God. Wow. And that crane's up there for a long ass time, y'all. <laughs> Two years later, 1994, President Kim Il-sung passes away and is named the eternal president of the DPRK. Eternal president. Eternal president. Uh, Three years of national mourning were announced. Uh, That sounds like a lot. I I don't know if citizens actually mourn for three years, but that's the the story. Yeah, that's kind of silly. You know. Sorry. I mean, (laughs) maybe not silly, but I will say like the official one, I think in Victorian times was one year and you had to wear, if you were a woman, you had to wear heavy black dresses Mm. every day for a year when you were in mourning. I'll say this much. I don't think it was authentic mourning. If it did truly go on for three years or that was sort of the, we're still in mourning, everybody. If you didn't, 
remember, it's year two of mourning. I feel like it's one of those, like, you didn't do it. You did it because you had to because this is not – this is a totalitarian regime. You do not want to upset a dictator. Right. Yeah. We're mourning. Yeah. If somebody asks, that's what we're doing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so – then what happened? The guy's dead. This was his pet project. Yeah. So this is when his son, Kim Jong-il, comes into power. And this morning goes on for years. Well, we kind of jump ahead to 2005. This is when South Korean uh, city, Incheon, is planning to host an Asian athletics championship. The South wants North Korea to participate. And the North bargains. They'll say, you know what? We'll send you af- athletes if Incheon funds the Ryongyang Hotel, this is how much they're still invested in it. It's a bargaining chip because this is a symbol of national pride. It is now an honor of their fallen eternal leader, their founding president and leader who has died. So this reminds me a lot of, um, uh, what's it called? Sunken cost fallacy, where you just keep putting yes. more money into something, throwing good money after bad, because now pride is on the line. And... We're going to look like idiots, even though this thing has been empty, abandoned, probably falling apart, substandard materials. Right. Uh, right. It probably would have been better just to knock it down and put something else up there. But it's – no. That At that point, you're admitting you were wrong. Exactly. And you can never, ever have that. If you If they had to show to the people that they were fallible in any way, then it would undermine – the whole eternal president thing and the supreme leader thing. And yeah, the way that they almost treat their leaders like monarchs. Well, they pretty much are in in a lot of ways. So the deal with South Korea falls through. So that doesn't happen. But there is relief in 2008 uh, from a little company, a little telecommunications company. Uh, What country affiliation? Think about this building. What country do you think? It's not really a country, but where this company is from. Who do you think comes to the aid uh, of this monolithic hotel just sitting there. Uh, oh my God, no, I have no clue. Uh, Egypt. It's an e- <laughs> What? <laughs> Speaking oh. of the pyramid shape, it's an Egyptian telecommunications company, Osracom. And basically they want to expand into an untapped foreign market with uh, radio towers and expand their telecom presence. So they strike a deal. We can install our network on your building and in hmm. an exchange... We're going to fix up this eyesore you have that you can't fix on your own. So this is when they start putting the mirrored glass and the metal cladding on the building. So the kind of the ridge lines, if you will, of the building get this sleek metal and the whole middle part, which is just these empty, uh, it almost looks like someone's punched holes in concrete. And it's, it's almost like a, um, a waffle board or something. And that starts to get covered by this really nice mirrored glass. And this is finally when they remove the crane. And this is an interesting story that I found. So the crane gets removed. And this is an interesting story of someone who was in Pyongyang at the time. This is 2009. And this person says it was a very foggy day and you couldn't even see the top of the building, but you could hear very loud helicopter noises, which is not common in Pyongyang. And about an hour later, the fog cleared and the crane was gone. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. So they were trying to even hide that. You know, it's funny. I don't know if it was because it was like, oh, let's just do it and take it away. Like if it happened that way by just dumb luck or happenstance or if it was intentional. 
But I just thought yeah, that was super crazy. fascinating. The fact that we don't know, that we can't say for sure, just says a lot about what we think. 100%. <laughs> about, you know, that's the thing. No trust. <laughs> I, I tried to find a lot of different sources. Obviously, I didn't go straight to North Korea. But people who um, worked there, who were living there at the time, trying to just get some different intel to see if the stories line up. What's really interesting right. also around this time, um, Oriscom's chief operating officer said – that the building didn't have too many problems and that the structural issues of the building could be resolved. So that's going on. And 2011, Kim Jong-il dies. But progress seems to continue because 2012, the project is completed. The eternal president Kim Il-sung's 100th birthday celebration. This is a huge deal. The building is completed. Again, you can't see me right now doing air quotes. Why do you think I'm doing air quotes, Allison? (laughs) Uh, cause it's, it's yes. Empty AF. It yes. is a cardboard <laughs> DeLorean. There is nothing inside yeah. when you open those doors. <laughs> Not a damn thing. So oh. again, if you look at the pictures, the outside looks pretty. It looks really nice. It looks super sleek. Nothing inside. It's all show. It's such a metaphor for so right? many people <laughs> and the, this whole concept of what they were doing in the first place. Yeah. Uh, This other group comes in about 2012 and 13. They want to work on the hotel. There's some conflicting reasons as to why they back out, but this is also when some missile testing is going on, some nuclear missile testing. And so perhaps that's part of it. And there's been some rumors that Russia and China have had an an interest in kind of reinvigorating and finishing out this hotel. But it was really super fascinating. 2018, this activity is being seen and there's workers on the outside and there's speculation as to what's going on. And in April, out of nowhere, the hotel suddenly lights up with LED lights. Oh man. They turned it into the, like a Vegas attraction. Slash propaganda machine. So the top has the flag of the DPRK uh, on that top cone And one whole side, so it's like three-sided if you look at it, one whole side is LED screens. And they show these videos and movies. And again, it's just basically propaganda for how great North Korea is. Chilling. Again, all of this effort put into show. The last information I could find is 2019. So as of June 2019, a sign was put up of the hotel's name in both Korean and English over the main entrance. And there's an Australian national who was detained in 2019 espionage charges. So Alec Sigley, Alec had, he had visited the country multiple times and had done like a, um, I think like an exchange program or was, um, I can't quite remember, but he was there kind of learning and came back and visited multiple times and started his own tour company of North Korea. And he would share photos and blog about it. Well, a tweet went out uh, about the interior of the Ryongyang's hotel. And it's empty. You can go look these up on the internet. Concrete, empty. Just nothing. God, not even an attempt. It's basically just straight up artifice. It, yeah. It's just it's a it's a frame holding up a mirrored sign. Yeah. Now. And this story yeah. runs on NK News, which is basically like a, a news source from and about North Korea. Not from, but about North Korea. And right around that time is when he gets detained for espionage 
charges. Uh, though they, you know, the North Korean government says, no, that's not the reason they did it. But the, the speculation is basically, uh, they kind of got under the skin of the grandson. Uh, you know, this is meant to be the triumphant part of the eternal president. Like this is in honor of his legacy. Wasn't a super huge fan of that. But yeah, barren rooms, empty verandas, just a concrete everywhere. Um, so I thought that was super crazy fascinating. And that's the latest. As of now in 2022, I couldn't find anything beyond that. I don't imagine that it'll ever be anything more than what it is. I feel like it's a perfect mechanism for them now to use it as basically a giant projector. And also, I guess, to sell this image that they're trying to make sure people stay fed under like that's you know was the ultimate goal in in many ways uh of building it in the first place was to like show their strength and might to everyone right uh so that's what it's doing (laughs) just not as a building uh that you can go in and do anything so according to people in north korea um, again, this is a little, I guess you could call it insider information from the country, at least. The belief is very much the policy of North Korea to open the hotel. Uh, and the idea would be is they would open about six to 24 floors of the hotel, which would be a much easier lift, right? Um, some of the bottom floors and then the top. But still, you have this entire middle that is just nothing but you know we were talking offline about liminal spaces right these like back corridors of hotels and everything this has a massive liminal space if you're gonna have 80 floors that are empty i i i would love to go in it i i that would be something finished or not finished i think it would be interesting to see what a finished hotel there would look like sure it's hard to imagine life in north korea only because it's shrouded with so much that we don't know that we're not allowed to see and right. we can't communicate with, with the people, the citizens there. So it's just, uh, it leads the, the imagination to crazy places. It, it's such an interesting fascination and particularly it feels like of the three leaders, Kim Jong-il, the previous leader, he, he just seemed to have such a cult of personality. I don't know that Kim Jong-un quite has that, but it's it's fascinating on one hand. You know, it's kind of like you and I talk a lot about true crime and it's like it's really fascinating to get into side, inside the head of somebody who would do something terrible. But when it becomes entertainment or titillating, it's someone died, right? And in this case, it's like we have a, a bankrupt, by all accounts, starving populace. That's basically treated like at the – I read something that like if they needed – something to happen in the country, they could basically go to North Korean students and say, okay, you're construction workers now. Build what we need. And just to use people to your whims. Um, it's just so dark. It's just... Oh, it is. It's it's really crazy. And the last thing I just want to say about the hotel is like, there's a lot of questions. Is it even structurally sound? Like if they do actually go ahead and open this thing, because I think oh, sometime in, within the last 10 years, a 23-story building in North Korea collapsed because of the construction. And this one, again, there's a lot of mystery, like a lot of the, apparently the shafts weren't aligned correctly. Um, The concrete foundation was said to be sagging, not built with steel. So part of it too is like, if they want to update it, it's really hard to do when it's reinforced concrete. So much easier when it's steel. So if you want to update all of the the wiring and everything that's 
clearly 1980s specifications, not or ventilation systems like that too. Like all of that infrastructure is just going to be so much harder to do. And is it seismically active there? I would That's imagine it would be. I don't actually know. Because could you imagine an earthquake could just at absolutely take that thing down? I, well, I can't about imagine it. It wasn't. Well, Fukushima was a tsunami caused by an earthquake in the ocean, right? Yes. Yes. Um, but I mean, there are earthquakes and volcanic eruptions in Japan a right. lot. So I imagine there would have to be some seismic activity in Korea. Uh, That's a great question. That peninsula there. But man, I mean, it's just, I couldn't imagine. And and then the scary thing is, is we might not know. The last update that we had on this was 2018. I wonder what it actually really looks like right now, because we can't, we're given images. We don't know how they're all older. We don't, who knows? Well, and what's interesting too, is if you look at the construction photos, again, this is a lot of perception. If you look at it now, you're like, oh, wow, that's just, think of a, a purely glass building that's built, you know, here, Saudi Arabia, like um, China, where these really modern, all glass, beautiful Buildings are, those are truly all glass. This just looks like it's all glass. That is facade. What is behind it, those are not all full windows. And that's another aspect of this too. It's a perception. And and there's just something to me about what would drive a country, uh, a dictator really, to not bankrupt, but really sink a lot of precious dollars from their economy into a project like this for nothing but one-upmanship. And here we are 34 years later, and the fight is being now carried on by the grandson of the original person. This just reminds me a lot of like family feuds, right? Of just people who they can't let something go. Right. Uh, That's absolutely fascinating when you think about it that way. And this being put on this kind of level in a country where there's already tremendous hardship. We're always on the brink of an explosive situation with them because in many ways they're, you know, the government is just very desperate, uh, but they can't show it. <laughs> so it, it's just, I feel for those people, um, but I still want to go on that building. So, well, we're going to talk about why we have a fascination with stuff like this. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, but we've got some more structures to talk about, don't we? We do. And we'll go move a little faster with these next couple because while they're very interesting, a lot of uh, they kind of explain themselves in some way. So I want to talk about uh, a very famous building for anybody who uh, is even remotely familiar with New York or has seen certain movies like Rosemary's Baby. It's a landmark building in New York uh, in the Dakota building. That's not the main reason that it's famous. Anybody who ever heard of a guy named John Lennon, this sort of small time uh, musician, uh, (laughs) and his wife, Yoko Ono, they lived in the Dakota and a crazed fan uh, gunned John Lennon down in front of that building in 1980. Mark another castle-looking building. Yes, this building is the quintessential Gothic Manhattan. Looks like something out of Batman. It, it's very much a of that time period uh, in which it was built. The late 1800s just was really into that sort of Gothic-looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, structure. So, as I said before, it, it famously housed John Lennon, but it's also very much a, a beacon for like notable people. A ton of famous people have lived in, lived in this building. Uh, but I'll get to that in just a second. Here's some basics, kid. Uh, <laughs> 
The Dakota building sits at 72nd Street at Central Park West. It was originally commissioned to be built by the Singer Sewing Machine Company founder, Edward Clark. He spent a million dollars and uh, intended for it to be a residence for 60 families, including his own. However, uh, Clark died two years before the building's completion. He never got to see his dream come true. Uh, so already we're at tragedy number one yeah. associated in some way with people at the Dakota. No, we'll get into that a little bit more. But why did they call it the Dakota? Uh, at the time, the West End of Manhattan, where this sits, was so underdeveloped and far from the main hub of the city. And so it was humorously intended as a way to say that it's so far out West, it might as well be in the Dakotas. Like it's <laughs> it's that far. Yeah. So that's, so that's stuck. And so anybody who looks at this and, and like I, I mentioned Rosemary's Baby before because it was a it's one of the more famous uh, exterior depictions of this building in a well-known film. It's a pretty scary, fun little treat uh, made by Roman Polanski starring Mia Farrow, pregnant with the Antichrist. Let's just get it out there. So it's it's by all means kind of like one of the legendary horror it films. don't get much darker than pregnant with the Antichrist. Good movie, but I, I really like this one. So and really, you have that gar- gothic architecture. It's like the perfect look for a woman impregnated with Satan. Uh, <laughs> so here's some interesting trivia, though, about Rosemary's Baby. Just a quick aside. So it was directed by Roman Polanski. And there was a lot of bad juju on the film set. It was just a very troubled production, Mm. sort of like The Exorcist in its own way. And so after filming wrapped, uh, several people involved in the production started experiencing really crappy things, like bad luck kind of stuff. Mm. Like the film's composer fell into an eerie like coma. Like it's like he had a stroke, fell into a coma that was like very similar to something that happened to a character in the story. It was just a weird... Mm. Uh, out of nowhere kind of health scare. And then another producer, he ended up with a severe case of kidney stones while he was in the hospital. He had vivid hallucinations about the movie. Like it just, you know, haunted him. And so then director Roman Polanski's wife, for those really in Hollywood know, uh, Sharon Tate became increasingly interested in the occult as a result of this movie. It really kind of became a little obsession of hers, apparently. And she was infamously killed by members of the Manson family and sort of cultish looking ritual it's just kind of a it's so weird right like those those links in the chain and so while none of this happened specifically at the dakota the pattern of strange deaths of famous people who you know spent some time there is just kind of interesting to examine so marilyn monroe did a photo shoot there a few years before her her tragic and very controversial death you could again that's a whole podcast in and of itself marilyn monroe and all the conspiracies uh, surrounding her and her death. Uh, Judy Garland lived there for a time before she died of a drug overdose in the UK. And then we have the building's original owner who died before it was completed. And its first official resident, composer Peter Tchaikovsky of the Nutcracker uh, fame there. There has also been a lot of debate surrounding his official cause of death. So it's just like kind of a a weird sort of thing. Like when you think about Hollywood tragedies or the tra- tragedies of of famous people a lot of them have passed through the dakota at some point it's almost like a a weird little nexus and so that leads people to say of course there's a curse on the building or the property and and whatnot so other residents have also reported paranormal activities there over the years uh john lennon himself claimed to have seen a ghost there on more than one occasion 
and Yoko feels like she's seen John's uh, spirit there as well. And other people have had like weird things happen with fixtures and chandeliers disappearing like from apartments, just out, like literally just vanishing. And one couple like claimed that they came in and found this chandelier in like there. It hadn't been there before. And then it disappeared. Mm. <laughs> Weird, right? It's just yeah. weird stuff. And then the building has the potential for an even bigger curse. So get this. I don't know if you you noticed it even looking at the outside of this building, but you'll see that it has no fire escapes. Oh. The architect, uh, Henry J. Hardenberg, feared it would mar the look of the building. So we opted to use high level like fireproofing methods instead. Isn't this kind of like the Titanic where they're like lifeboats? That is literally in my notes right now. (laughs) Yeah, that that's exactly what that is. So if that building did catch on fire, it's 150 years old. Those techniques might not hold forever, right? So it's a 10th floor building with a lot of units in it. Uh, And so that's Thousands of people. It's a lot of olive gardens. A lot of olive gardens. It's so many olive gardens. Uh, Lauren Bacall herself had a nine-room apartment. Uh, so you can Ooh. get a pretty big unit in this place. Yeah. That's what she said. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> that brings me then to the notable residents that this place has had. One of the first families to move in was the Steinway family of the Steinway Piano Fortune. Other uh, residents include Lauren Bacall author Harlan Coben, Jack Palance, U2's Bono, and Maury Povich. I'm sorry, Jack Palance, the actor? Yes, yes. Whoa. Right, talk about a city slicker, am I right? Dang, that's a dated reference. Uh, also the mob boss from the first Batman movie? That's correct. That's <laughs> You are my number one. God. Oh, God. I uh, loved him in that movie. I think Jack you... Palance, man. Yep. Oh, my God. He's a terrifying person. Talk about... Oh, yeah. He had a great, great screen presence. And so that's just a a selection of people that have lived in there. Uh, And you certainly can't be poor. Apartments in this place have sold for as much as $21 million. And there's currently a unit for sale that has been vacant for eight years. And is currently listed at $14 million. But why is it? Is it vacant? Because Because the the place is terrifying. Well, yeah, I think there might be an element of that. But no, it's uh, because the co-op board there is just a bunch of stickling a-holes. This is the list of people that they have rejected for apartments there. Melanie Griffith and Antonia Banderas, Cher, Billy Joel, Madonna, Carly Simon, Alex Rodriguez, and Judd Apatow have all been rejected. Okay, I thought you were going to give a much different list than that. Like, I'm just trying to even think who would be on that list. Uh... Kid Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Kid Rock. <laughs> uh... Larry the Cable Guy. I don't know. I guess that's uh, following a theme. I, I was going to say like Kevin Spacey. or uh... <laughs> Oh, like people that are really gross. Or, yeah. Or pregnant and have shown their true colors. Yeah. You know, I thought it was going to be people like that. I'm sorry. What's Melanie Griffith ever done to you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Anthony Flags, give me a break. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just feeling like if Madonna can't get into this place, I mean, for crying out loud. I mean, you know, if she came in with her fake British accent, I'd be like, eh, move okay. along, sister. <laughs> I, I could uh, not want all that slide. That's Let's true. Other people come. Or like, you know, Alec Baldwin. He's got a little temper, right? I could see it. Like, you know. Yeah. You don't want you here. Or Sean Penn. He's, you know, anyway. There's, there might be an element too of like, yeah, if, if, 
if you're too famous, then you'll attract too much attention to the building. Maybe that's my own. That's my guess. I I didn't see that listed. I think I feel like the co-op is this shadowy like figure again. The demon basement factor. They're like the people who do the ratings for the movies, right? This little like cabal of people. Here's my thing: How many people can afford a fourteen million dollar apartment? How many of those people want to live in this particular apartment, live in New York, or want to live in New York? Apparently, they rather have an eight-year vacancy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're making enough money, I guess. And for a building that could potentially burn down and kill you inside it because you can't get out. That's the other thing. But it's a status thing, man. It's like you live in the Dakota. I mean, that's that's one of those things that it's, it is a hot landmark, especially... In the years since John Lennon's death, I think that when that event really put the that building on the map in a big way before it was like just kind of a quiet, exclusive little apartment building for celebrities and and whatnot. And and now it's like the basically a shrine to John Lennon out there in front of the place. And so it, it's uh, it's difficult and, and understandable why they might not want that kind of attention. But it's definitely an interesting piece of ground and mm. uh, very notable in its own way. And who knows what may happen as the years go by. Um, but uh, that's my... That's What's the last death? What's the last death? The last death? I don't... Has it been a while? I don't think anything major happened there after that. It's just that if you've happened to be in the building, you're going to carry some psychic stank with you and something horrible could happen. So. Or it's like it and it's in its dormancy and the building's going to wake up it and it's going to want to feed. Mm-hmm. It cycles and then we could head straight into Ghostbusters territory. It's going to increase paranormal activity throughout the city. There it is. There we go. There psychic is. antennas. Uh, yeah. Plot for Ghostbusters 4. Book it. <laughs> Let's do this thing. So yeah, that's my little side, my little side piece. <laughs> <laughs> you're entertaining yourself over there i, I love am it. sorry uh yeah you got units and side pieces you'll see a great. picture of my side piece i'll put it on the socials um oh, please do. <laughs> it's hot. Uh, but now i want to talk about yours because you, when you told me you were doing this <sighs> this is why i can't make this just about buildings you guys uh we promised a teaser in the teaser earlier that we would have something not a building. You know, Allison gave me an assignment, which was architecture. And as I was going through and looking, I was like, yeah, I could do a building. But there's just this uh, structure that, again, once it's kind of like the hotel. Once it got into my head, I couldn't get it out. There's just something freaking creepy about it. And I'm talking about a roller coaster as it turns out, which is also kind of fascinating. Something built for amusement, which is just dark and sinister and kind of crazy looking. And I'm talking about the Crystal Beach Cyclone. So we're we're talking like the late 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, kids. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, this is a very famous coaster. Okay, it is. We're gonna have a lot of transatlantic accents in here. You see what I'm meow, saying? Yeah, yeah. So the Crystal Beach Cyclone. First off, much like the hotel, just stop what you're doing right now. If you're in a car, please don't do this. Pull over. Look up Crystal Beach Cyclone. This coaster. Looks like a nightmare. I love roller coasters. Allison, are you a coaster lover? I was once a a heavy roller coaster enthusiast. Absolutely. I have not ridden one in, I don't even know how long. Yeah. It's been a decade, maybe? It's been a long time. I was in it. In my 20s, I was into coasters like no one's business. But I don't know if I'd ride this one. No. I really don't know if I would. 
I, I'm looking so, at it. I mean, um, my threshold is pretty like, I know you were like super into them. Uh, I was for a bit at the Kings Island, you know, we're Ohio people, sure. Ohio shout out. Cedar um, Point. Cedar Absolutely. Point. We have some, if you come to the state for anything, you're coming for the amusement parks. They're, you know, mm-hmm. those two are fantastic and some legendary coasters, but there came a point for me and there, I think there's always been a point of like, barely restrained like anxiety and panic that I always have right before I get on one and I think me riding a coaster takes a bit of like that like I have to like muster it up the courage and then it's just so exhausting and also my inner ear is a little weird so I started getting some vertigo and nausea after I get off the coaster um so I kind of that's one reason I don't do it really much although I did ride uh, a few I took uh, Elias, my son, to Kings Island a few years ago, and I rode a few coasters, okay. and I realized that uh, <laughs> I don't have it like I used to. Man, I really don't. <laughs> it's, a young, it's a young person's game; it Ooh. really is. I, yeah, we all reach. Up, I mean, you don't see a lot of ninety-year-olds on uh, roller coasters, and for good reason. It's uh, it can take it out of you, especially the Crystal Beach Cyclone, which was one of the terrifying triplet of highly extreme and vicious roller coasters designed and built by Harry G. Traver in the late. 1920s. And this one was located Crystal Beach Park, Ontario, Canada. So let's learn a little bit about this coaster. As I said, these three coasters known as the Terrifying Triplet were designed and built by the Giant Cyclone Safety Coasters. So the three coasters are the Crystal Beach Cyclone and the Revere Beach Lightning, which both opened in 1927. And then a year later at Palisades Park in Fort Lee, New Jersey, uh, a cyclone, it sounds like it was just the duplicate and also named the cyclone, was opened in 1928. Giant cyclone safety coasters, what do you think their main feature would be based on that name? Restraints. <laughs> or safety? The things that hold you, yeah, the things that hold you in the thing. <laughs> well, these were a model line of roller coasters, which were designed and marketed, again, by Harry Traver and his company, Traver Engineering, in the 1920s. So despite their name, here's the problem. They had a dangerous reputation and regarded by many historians as some of the most fearsome roller coasters ever built. So the name is a little bit of an advertising BS scenario. Right, right. Here's what's crazy about them. This is the geometry of these tracks. They feature very tight turns, spirals, figure eights. Again, look at this. I don't know how you could photo. even how that's even like physically possible. It is This feels like a coaster somebody made on Roller Coaster Tycoon or one of these games where you're making something that defies physics or a monster or a giant came along and twisted this coaster. One of the hills and it looks almost like vertical. It's all, it all, it feels like an optical illusion in some cases. You're like, is this thing even for real? So all of these elements, um, a lot of their coasters banked to very steep angles, some of them approaching 85 degrees. That's not an 85 degree drop. That is a bank. Yeah. You are practically sideways going around some of these turns another common element were these undulating jazz tracks i think they're also called like jazz hands (laughs) (laughs) it was the 20s (laughs) just like watching people do the charleston now all of a sudden it had another element called these jazz tracks these undulating sections of track and there was almost no straight track on this entire no coaster it's all nothing was ever flat or straight all curves all twists all jazz tracks, all spirals, figure eights, everything is just twisting you back and forth. Cyclone is a very 
apt name for this. Travers coasters were described as embodying the reckless spirit of the 1920s. <laughs> yeah, Sounds about we, right. we know where all that all ended. Yeah. <laughs> So the ride itself lasts about 40 seconds. So it's super short. When you add in the lift hill, it's about 70 seconds. By all accounts, riders would experience four Gs. Yikes. Yikes. Four uh, it's, it's amazing lot, that it, people didn't pass out. I'm sure they had They had to have. I would imagine for like lay people, like people that aren't used to being exposed. I think uh, there's a coaster at Kings Island. Um they called it the face off back when it first opened when it was the park was owned by mm. Paramount. Um, and it's I can't remember what it's called now. I think it's uh, the Banshee is what they call it now. That's right. Um, oh, they've okay. changed it. Yeah. Another another owner took it over and renamed everything again. Um, and so anyway, your face forward. It's a hanging. It's hanging from the track. The car is and you fit facing forward going through it once and then it reverses and it takes you back through and then you're going backwards. And they talk about their areas of that coaster where you ex- can experience up to like two G's. And I, my first time I rode that coaster, I got so sick, so sick. And I felt dizzy for so long. It was one of my last coaster rides before I gave them up for 20 years. So four G's I'm imagining experiencing twice what made me very ill. <laughs> yeah. I would be, it would, it would have to have vomit flying off of that coaster at all times. It's probably like you give people waiting in line, like umbrellas. Cause people are always barfing on this thing. <laughs> like, that's all I can imagine. Interesting note. We're going to come back to both those things. Okay. Interesting note. So by all accounts, the max speed was about 52 to 60 miles per hour. So again, pretty fast, heavy Gs, flinging back and forth. It's a lot. So about 5 million rides have been given in the Cyclone's 20-year history and only one fatality. Wow. The fatality did occur on opening day. Ooh. A individual allegedly stood up to take his suit coat off and he was thrown from the train after the first drop and oh. fell to his death. Oh. Being, oh, this is the worst part, being hit seconds later by the train he had been riding in. So he falls off near the top of the hill. The car then, the train comes and then hits him on the track below. Wow. Wow. Oh, that's awful. Uh, it's amazing that it kept going after. You know what I mean? Like the, I don't mean like that it kept going after it hit him. Like literally, I mean that the coaster st- like stayed open, that it wasn't, Yeah. Uh, that they decided, yeah, yeah, you know, this is all right. We could deal with this. Uh, next, uh, who wants to ride the Crystal Cyclone? Yeah. And, and I should say this wasn't the grand opening, like the very first time it opened. This was opening day in 1938. So like the first day of the season of that particular, but I mean, what a terrible way to kick off that year. Oh, for sure. And apparently a failed lap bar was deemed to be the cause. And then a woman died on the sister coaster in 1927 after having jumped out. And there's not a lot of detail I could find as to how that happened, but I don't know if it's a similar failure of these restraints. Pretty big deal if you're going to call yourself the giant, what was it, giant cyclone safety company, whatever the crap it was called. Yeah. A little bit of a misnomer. So the big deal about this is that there was a nurse station at the end of this coaster. Oh. To assist anyone if they were fainted, or if they fainted or were injured. Um, Originally, apparently, was hired to keep insurance costs lower, uh, and then later rumored that she was kept on the payroll to help kind of keep up this image of this terrifying coaster. Oh, you know, the word spreads. We're talking about it now. There was a nurse out there. Um, If you saw that yourself, would you want to go on that coaster? Uh, What's your threshold? 
Five million rides. Yeah. Five million rides. Apparently it did. Yeah, but did you... What, what about you, personally? What would you do? Ooh, I... Okay, I talked about this with you when we were talking about this topic. Son of Beast. Yes. So if you don't know Kings Island in Ohio and near Cincinnati, Kings Fair. Oh, you mean... Kings Mill. Kings, Kings Mill. Mill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kings Mill, Ohio. Um, this is a very old coaster there. It's brilliant. It's called The Beast. It's oh, been yeah. there basically our entire lifetime. I think it was built in 79, 78. Yeah. Fantastic coaster. They built a newer coaster, gosh, it's early 2000s, called Son of Beast. It is going to be the world's longest, fastest, and it had tallest. A, and it had a loop. Wooden coaster with a loop. The only yeah. inverting. And it was going to beat all the records that The Beast may still even actually have for wooden coasters. Speed and length. Yeah. It may not have been longer, but it was actually taller and faster. That's right. Right. Um, and this thing was also plagued with poor construction and design flaws from the outset. And much like the Cyclone, the trains were so heavy, they were actually just beating down on the structure and kind of ruining the track. So much so that Son of Beast, they had to remove the loop and put a lighter train in it so that um it wouldn't damage the coaster and so that's why eventually the loop went out but this like this thing never ran it was this is when i had a season pass we were going like during the summer multiple times a week and it was always a gamble was son of beast going to be open right and that thing was rough i mean i remember a few rides where it really jacked me up so having said that would i ride this thing well i don't know it's so hard to say it looks like a nightmare (laughs) It looks like you're absolutely right. And that's the thing about wooden coasters in particular, even even new good ones. The mean streak at Cedar Point about killed my back for a few days. And I mean, so yeah, they lots of vibration, lots of jostling, even the beast. The beast is even more so now just because of its age. But even when we were riding it, when it was only still, you know, 18 years old at the time, it was still a jankity, a bit of a jankity ride. And so that's what I would worry about. If I could guarantee that my spine would remain intact, uh, put me in like a body brace so that. (laughs) But here's the thing, like wooden coasters are always going to be rickety no matter what. Yeah. This one's even a more extreme version of that. Putting our own experience and having ridden a lot of coasters and applying what we know, having ridden a good number of them. And I'm sure a lot of you out there who too have spent a lot of time in amusement parks, just looking at that coaster uh, is gut churning. And there's still though, always that little, little glimmer Tiny, tiny as it may be, like, huh, I wonder what that's going to feel like. That's the crazy allure of it. Even though it's terrifying, you're like, I I could survive it. I mean, most people do. Well, it's like the risk ratio in your brain is going, how many people has this thing killed? Only one? Okay. You know, so we'll factor that in. And, oh, you know, they probably test these things every day for safety. I mean, you tell yourself that because you don't want to know the truth. That's just, right. it's like, for right. the, it's that same level of trust that we give to restaurants that they're not spitting in the food. But we're just going to push that out of our brain so we can have fun. <laughs> so can I read you a couple of writer quotes? This is where the transatlantic accent, I apologize, is going to come in. Oh, because please when do. I read these words, I cannot read these in my normal voice. <laughs> do it. Do it. So this is from Irma Andrews. She was a pilot of biplanes hmm. and was a registered nurse at the age of 16. So she's seen and done some things. She said she rode the cyclone a lot. It was quite... <laughs> I was quite used to thrilling rides, you know, ho-hum, passe, but it was a real pissa. Come on now. <laughs> uh, At one point, it looked like 
At one point, it looked like we were going right into the drink, because the ride is built on stilts, you see, and it jetted out over the lake, and you turn and swoop right down there. They had a nurse station at the end of it, because people will come off sick or injured. Oh, my God, this yeah. is so great. You go, like, right in the drink. Uh, love right in the that. drink, you see, you see, is here. It's built on stilts, you see. So good. Then she goes into this whole story, I won't go through all of it, where she's sitting next to this kid, and she's basically on top of him. And she, what did she say? He's like, the ride was so violent that I guess we just got mixed in with each other. Like, she's basically like, she was on top of this kid and it was embarrassing. And and then another quote was by uh, a guy named Ed Mills, who was in the Canadian Army. So once again, he has this preamble. He's like, I was in the military. My friends and I were soldiers. We had this kind of nothing to fear mentality. We see this coaster and we're going. So he says he goes up. They're waiting in line, and something smacks him in the face, and he looks at it. It's a wallet. Someone's wallet from their <laughs> coaster had flown off and hit him in the face. Oh, no. So to your point about umbrellas, there you go. Yeah, so there's money flying off of this thing. That's kind of cool. It gives you money. They're paying me to ride, see? <laughs> and then he says that he's smelling, as they're waiting here, the stench of vomit. Mm. As they're waiting there to we get go. on this coaster. So the vomit did come in. Yeah, he said it was very disconcerting, but they got on anyway. And then here we go to his account. Uh, it was our turn to ride, and we ran, to, and we ran to the coaster cars. Up the steep ramp we went, up, up, and then up some more until we could see the entire amusement park. Just as I was enjoying the view, the car lurched forward, and I looked in front of me down a steep incline that looked like it must have been about eighty degrees slope. Cars then headed down the incline at warp speed, and all I could see in front of us was Lake Erie. I was sure there must have been part of the tracks missing, and then I uttered the only two words the entire ride. Jesus Christ! <laughs> as, we plunged, <laughs> as we plunged down toward the lake. Then I see a steep bank to the right of the incline, and we changed directions in a split second, turning violently on our sides as the car careened around a hairpin turn. I looked sideways and saw the earth spinning by, and from that point on... Most of the ride was pretty much a blur. The last thing he says is, Very frankly, I was relieved to see the cars finally slowing down. Even then, they approached the unloading platform at such a speed that one would think they would overshoot and go right into the spectators. Oh, wow. But that's the thing. This thing had no brakes on it. You know, a lot of coasters will have like a break point. Yeah. There's like a small part where there's a little bit of a break. But other than that, this thing is just launching you forward on this wild ride. That is terrifying yeah to to think about um and it's only 40 seconds yes but i think anybody in the last two years who has say i don't know have had a cotton swab shoved right up their nose and they say it's only 10 <laughs> seconds uh it's amazing how terror and pain and anxiety can stretch a second out to feel like a minute uh so 40 seconds it doesn't sound like much but damn i think that would be the, the most vital 40 seconds of your life where every sensor in your brain is just exploding yeah. like fireworks yeah uh, well the coaster basically tore itself apart maintenance you know it was built on being like low maintenance but ended up being a headache uh, because of the high forces that were generated on the structure it really just wore it down they I think removed some cars from the trains to make them lighter. But at that point, it it really didn't matter. And basically, somebody who used to work there said, you know, it seemed like couldn't remember a week where it wasn't operating every day. It was just kind of tore itself apart. And then 
eventually dismantled in 1946. Uh, but some of the wooden steel was repurposed for another coaster called the Comet that was uh, built in 1948. So to my knowledge, that's still an operating coaster. So in some way, you might be able to ride a little bit of the legacy, hopefully a much smoother ride, of the Crystal Beach Cyclone. Yeah, that uh, that is one I would absolutely ride. Uh, looks like it's here or not here, like we're like where in New York. Uh, it's in Queensbury, New York, uh, yeah. at the Great Escape. So, I mean, if you're in the New York area, drop on in. Uh, I would absolutely love to go on the Comet. It looks like it's a real piece of history. Allison, how did we talk about the we're just so fascinated two hours flew by what's going on it i know uh this got a little out of hand as i'm sure some <laughs> of these people that we talked about might be able to agree with uh mm. with their own projects that they said about we have built a sprawling artifice of an episode so <laughs> we are going i said artifice and i meant edifice i always do that slightly different meanings there um so we had another thing we were going to talk about, and it was our own personal experience with a, a haunting structure. But we're going to roll that into another separate episode because we feel that there's enough content to generate a full episode. And we would very much like to be able to give the adventure that we had that day. We just want to be able to give that enough breathing space. So that's what we will do. Uh, later this season, we will drop an episode about our our first experience in, in trespassing together. <laughs> Breaking the law. Uh, good times. Um, we're wanted. We're wanted. St- statute of limitations has expired. There is a statue Sorry. of limitations. A statue of limitations. That's right. <laughs> Uh, this was so much fun. And, great. and if you have anything you'd like to add about the topics we spoke about today, if you have any additional trivia on these structures, uh, feel free to drop me a line at email uh, ddarknesstime at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on the Twitter and the Instagram. Also, going to put in a plug for you to uh, check out Chris's podcast uh, that he hosts with his buddy Ben, 80s High amazing 80s nostalgia at your fingertips cannot recommend it highly enough like i say if you like a little lightness with your darkness that's a good counter yes exactly so go visit the 80s for some of that that yummy lightness that they have going on over there gosh anything else chris before we wrap this thing up i think we've said enough today clearly we could talk for longer and i guess we'll just have to save it for another episode all right guys thanks for stopping by we'll see you next time Ding Dong Darkness Time has been brought to you and produced by yours truly, Allison Dixon. It was made possible by an array of amazing co-hosts, friends, family, but especially you, the listeners. Big shouts also go out to the brilliant Nathaniel Dixon for the show art and future legend Spencer Morlock for all the music. I'll be back again soon with another episode. In the meantime, be good, you little ding dongs.